Hi, this is Eric Ludi for the Daily Thunder Podcast. If you are enjoying these messages and want to take these truths even deeper, I invite you to join us in Windsor, Colorado at Ellerslie for one of our upcoming five-week or week-long discipleship training programs. Ellerslie's discipleship training has been designed to ignite your spiritual fire and to give you the tools for a Christianity that really works. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Today's message is going to be a compliment to yesterday's. Uh, so we did a Daily Thunder episode on Sunday. I know I'm sort of cheating when I do that, but uh, it, this series has been so invigorating to my soul that to spend my, my study time preparing another one in the series seems to be the best use of my time, at least in, over the last three weeks. And so I snuck another one in on a Sunday morning, uh, and that was staring down the shock troops. And this one has a lot of similar bent to it, just a different uh, emphasis. And it's called Eyes Open. And of course, there's one great story in Scripture that uh, goes along with eyes open. It's a story that many of us in here are familiar with. At Ellerslie, we repeat it, oh, I don't know, 10 times in a semester because it's, it's that good. And it's so significant to the functionality of the Christian life. So let's look at it in 2 Kings uh, chapter 6. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, speaking of his servant, saying to Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he, Elisha, answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So mathematically speaking, when Elisha says that those that are with us are more than those that are with, with them, it's totally ludicrous because there's two of them against an entire host of Syrians. And yet, Elisha's statement is correct. There are more that are with Elisha and the servant than there are that are with the Syrians, but they are unseen. And so the eyes open means to see that which God enables us as Christians uniquely to be able to see. The world can't see what we see. I, ironically, the entire idea and infrastructure of faith is based upon this idea of seeing what the world can't see. We build our life and our decisions around the unseen realm. We believe that there is a mountain full of horses and chariots of fire all around. And as a result, that dictates our decisions, decisions that otherwise would look totally foolish and they do look foolish to the world. But because we see something the world can't see, and we are acting upon something the world doesn't understand, we have something called the blessing of God that undergirds us and underlays our decisions. So as a result, we live what could be termed supernatural lives. But ironically, there really are superheroes, because those that's such a, you know, a mythical concept. But that's literally what Jesus was. 
He was someone who came in supernatural power, lived in a human body, and demonstrated something that was absolutely impossible. And ironically, that's precisely what Christianity is. That's what Christianity does. But that is because our eyes are open. And we reason through a different lens than the rest of the world. We see something the world doesn't see. So right now, you could stare at our culture and you see an ever-growing horde of Syrians that are hostile, that are desirous to take your life. As a Christian, you represent the nemesis of the culture. And so as a result, you could be on your haunches. You could feel very similar to what the servant in this story is feeling. It's like, alas, my master, <laughs> what in the world are we supposed to do? And that's precisely what so many of our souls are asking. Alas, oh Lord, what are we supposed to do? It looks like they're so, you know, the, the congregation against us is so big and we are so few. Lord, open our eyes that we might see. The lifeboat principle. So those of you that are in the Ellerslie semester, you heard this just, uh, what was it, like two weeks ago. Uh, and I was talking about a key moment in my own discipleship process when I first showed up at missionary school. It was the first Sunday. And I, I showed up at missionary school sort of dubious about the whole thing. I mean, I was willing, and I sensed that God was leading me to do this. But it's like, yeah, there's some strange people uh, in this whole missionary uh, adventure. And I'm not exactly sure if this is going to work out. Uh, do I really fit here? And you know that many of us have the same notion when we go radically towards Jesus. It's sort of like we go radically with a little disclaimer, little asterisks. And if you look at the footnote, it says, if this doesn't work out, then I can do this instead. And we create our little footnote, what I could call a lifeboat. A lifeboat is something that is established and built, put onto that boat, attached to the boat uh, back in the olden days by ropes, sometimes by chain, so that if the ship starts going down, you have a, an escape hatch. And so for many of us, we develop an escape hatch just as natural human behavior. It's just what we do. It's called insurance. And so because we aren't certain about the way that we're going, we want to make sure that we build the lifeboat. And so many of us oftentimes, even unwittingly, carry around a lifeboat on our life. And at any point in time, we could escape our clear calling from God and go in the direction that would be far more sane. And yet this is what God sometimes needs to touch in our life, our lifeboat. And that's what he did. My first week of missions uh, training, I go to a Sunday uh, sermon and they preach on this, Acts 27, 29 through 31. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship. They had let down the lifeboat into the sea. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So God is promising to save all the members of this ship. This is, uh, Paul is a prisoner on the ship, and he's on his way to Rome. He had appealed to Caesar. And so as a prisoner, though, he is gaining more and more notoriety on this ship because he is not afraid of this grand storm that has come against the ship. He believes that God is going to save every single one of the men on the ship. However, they need to stay on the ship. They can't jump aboard the lifeboat. And in fact, the most important thing to do in this situation is to 
clip off that lifeboat and let it fall into the sea. That lifeboat is actually hazardous. Unless you stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And so many of us, we have a commission, but that commission begins to go into hostile territory. That commission begins to go towards danger. That commission begins to go towards difficulty. And we have a tendency to panic in that situation. And if we have a lifeboat, we have a tendency to look longingly towards it and to sometimes even use it. And so as a result, the best thing we can do is cut off the lifeboat. And this is precisely what God has had to do in my life multiple times, where I have something other than God that I begin to look at and say, okay, but at least I have that. And God says, what are you looking at over there? And it's like Mary of Bethany with her spikenard. What is that Mary that you have there? Oh, it's, it's nothing, it's nothing. It's worth a year's wages. So that's a good insurance policy right there for Mary. Do you have an insurance policy in your life that is a displacement or a replacement for God? And so as a result, this tension that we feel in our life of if God doesn't work out, then I can always come back to this. Acts 27, 32, and here's the big scripture that really impacted my life. Uh, if we go way back, I don't know what that was, close to 30 years ago. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the lifeboat and let it fall off. For me, my lifeboat was a different collegiate program. I'd left a, a program up in Spokane, and I had, a, I had already been accepted at Baylor University for their pre-med program. And oh, just to let that go, I also had an uncle who wanted me to go into business with him. And uh, so I had these notions. It's like, okay, God, if, if you don't work out, then I can turn this way. For each of us, we need to allow God to press his finger on that because it is going to get hard. When you are following Jesus, there are going to be moments where you will blanch and you will hesitate. In the human side, this is a hard road. It's called a narrow road. You guys do know what the narrow way translates into, the way of difficulty and compression. And it says, few are those who find it. You see, this isn't attractive to our natural man. Attractive to our natural man is something known as the broad way, not the narrow way. But we are called not down the broad way, but the narrow way. And anything that's going to keep you from staying on that narrow way, cut it off. That narrow way is the only way to life. New Zealand's siren song. So a siren song is that which woos us uh, away from the course that we're on. And in the uh, ancient Greek mythology, the sirens would hang out on the coastline and all the uh, red-blooded uh, sea captains would be going along and then they would hear the, so the, the song of the sirens and turn their ship and then wreck against the rocks and sink and die. The sirens, you know, they may look pretty, but they're, they aren't after your best interest. I'll just put it that way, okay? So most of us have a siren song of some kind. And it's something that allures us and we try not to listen to it, but it's just sort of there in the background. So and if you've read the screen, you know what my siren song has been for, oh, I don't know, 12 years. We've been invited down to even move our ministry or even have a branch of our ministry in New Zealand many times. By the way, I love New Zealand, okay? I, it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. It's beautiful. And, you know, they don't have any uh, poisonous things. I don't know if you've ever heard that about uh, New Zealand, which is very intriguing for the missionary side of you. Oh, I want to live fully for Jesus. I could do that in New Zealand. 
pestilence. Uh, where there is no poisonous snakes or no poisonous bugs, I like that. And so, but it's a, it's a siren song in many ways. And it doesn't mean it'd be bad for me to go to New Zealand and to set up shop and to do ministry. It's just interesting because when it, it has gotten very difficult here in the United States for Eric and Leslie Ludi at times, very difficult to the point where we just want to be anywhere but here. And uh, we've had so much false accusation against us. It's just, you want to go into a hole and hide sometimes. It's like, you know what? I don't even want to face it anymore. I just want to get out of here. It's a very, very common thing to the natural man, escape. Okay, escape doesn't fit into the kingdom pattern. Let me just get that under the table right now. As uh, William Grinnell, who wrote uh, this big, huge, thick, uh, three, well, three parts for me, I think uh, it got divided into three parts, but it's, it was at one point just a huge book called The Christian in Complete Armor. And one of the statements that William Grinnell is going to make is, God did not make any armor for the back. So he's breaking down the, the armor of God in Ephesians 6, and he says, but God did not make any armor for the back, which means there is no retreat. We are onward march. That's our entire job description as Christians. We are not the ones that turn and run. We have an assignment, and we keep moving. And so, but each of us could have a siren song. We've joked about it many times in our executive team where we'll go around and everyone will share their siren song. We don't call it that always. But that which is sort of our option, our, our out. It's like, okay, this is getting too hot over here. Where could I escape to? And it's funny because the enemy will always try and set something like that in front of us. And it's, it's hard for our mind not to chew on the escape hatch, on the lifeboat. Hey, Eric and Leslie, if you came here, all your challenges would cease. It's a bunch of bunk, too. That's what's funny, is challenges aren't isolated to just locations. The spiritual battle that we're in will follow us anywhere we're in, anywhere we're at. And as a result, we need the armor of God to live right where we're at. And it's not just, you know, prettier and easier and more comfortable somewhere else. We need to learn to live precisely where God has planted us and that's where the grace is. The grace is for what our calling is. Did you know there's no grace for something that isn't your calling? And there's no worse life than to live without grace. But you have grace for your calling. So if that calling is in the midst of difficulty, you at least have grace to face that difficulty. And that grace is sufficient for you, which means it overcompensates for the challenge, which means you end up with a profit margin in grace. You never lose when you follow God. You always end up stronger, richer, and more uh, undergirded than you would if you decided to go your own way and live your own life. When the threat looms on the horizon. So right now, and I, I mentioned this in church yesterday. I'm not sure if it was in the message or if it was before, but there is a very real threat. We have voices in our life that are saying all sorts of bad things that are going to happen. Uh, to the church. Yeah, it's only a matter of time. Yeah, we see where this is going. Okay, now, I understand all of that. I, I can see trajectory just like the next person, okay? It's like A plus B equals C. It doesn't take a lot of smarts to be able to see the direction of our culture and that it is strongly moving in an anti-Christian way. Okay, I see that. However, I could see the army of Syrians surrounding me too just like the servant, I could begin to panic. 
When the Syrians move in, guess who else is moving in? A mountain full of horses and chariots of fire all around. The question that I have for us as individuals and as a church is which one are we staring at? Because most of us have a tendency to only see the Syrians right now. And we see the devil's agenda and we see how bad it could get. But how many of us have a PhD in what God is doing right now? Most of us have spent our time and our energy and our emotions on what the enemy is doing right now. And we're pretty well, you know, learning about it. And we could tell, you know, if, if I said, tell me what's going on in the world today, you could tell me a whole bunch. If I could say, tell me what God is doing in the world today. Well, you know, I don't know. I can't see much. And I get it, okay? Because what God is doing is oftentimes not broadcast. CNN is not out interviewing the people that are in the midst of what God is doing. They are interested in describing to you that which would create fear in your soul. It's interesting. The tactic of news is to strike fear and insecurity and the need for more news as if news would somehow make you feel solid and, and stable. But it never does. It makes you feel less and less stable with time. So when the threat looms on the horizon, oh, there's a threat on the horizon. It's a very real one. The Syrians are coming, guys. Do you, do you see them? I, I, I can see them. Their heads are cresting the horizon right there. Oh, look at them. It's a big army. Uh -huh. So when the threat looms on the horizon. So here's Darlene Dibler. Uh, we're in uh, Irian Jaya. And there's a threat that looms on the horizon. The Japanese troops are making their way towards Irian Jaya. Uh, it's okay to gulp, guys. This is pretty intense. If you're uh, Darlene Dibler and you're in her situation, it makes total sense that this would be a scary situation. It does. This ranks up there with a Syrian army surrounding you and all you are, Elisha and a servant. Okay, this is a very, very challenging situation. How do you speak courage into the hearts of people when you have nothing but defeat to report? Doesn't that sound a little like the last couple of years? It is very difficult to say, hey, people, look at the good stuff that's happening out there. People are like, I don't see it. <laughs> I don't see any good things that have happened. I see churches shut down on lockdown. I see the church going silent. They don't know how to share the gospel anymore with their masks on. Everyone's afraid, living in their sort of bomb shelter mentality. I'm not seeing the good news. All I'm seeing is the bad news. That's what she's saying, too. How do you speak courage in the hearts of people when you have nothing but defeat to report? Yet every broadcast from the Manila newspaper held overtones of hope. Test, test. Am I still fine here? This, uh, this is interesting. Uh, Yet every broadcast from Manila newspaper held overtones of hope, hope for a miracle that would turn the advancing victorious hordes of the enemy. I can hear it now, and a lump rises in my throat, the last transmission. So this is uh, from the radio network in Manila. This is a, this is a very powerful uh, thing. I'm here in the building in the center of the city. The bombs are falling all around us. Background noises of planes and explosions emphasized his statement. I'm going to have to close down. A sob interrupted his delivery. Then all of a sudden, we heard him shout, Come on, America! The awful silence that followed, pregnant with horror, left us sobbing. Yes, come on, America. Dear God, have mercy. January 2nd, 1942, the Philippines had fallen. You could just imagine. The Philippines are so much stronger than Irian Jaya. I mean, you've got to be kidding. We don't have anything here to defend ourselves. The Philippines just went down. And they went down quick. 
and the Japanese are not stopping. And they're going to sink the, 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 the one source of hope that they have left uh, is that there's two huge battleships from the United States and from Great Britain that are there, and they get sunk. And it's just like one of the darkest days in the world because there's, no, there's now no defense against the Japanese. And these guys are sitting ducks right in the middle of it. Darlene Dibble is right in the middle of it. Do you think there's reason to panic? Do you think there's reason to get out? If there's an escape hatch, if there's a lifeboat, don't you think she should take it? The lifeboat moments that test our souls. See, the question in every situation is where are you supposed to be? Not where do you want to be, where are you supposed to be? Because sometimes those differ. I don't know if you've noticed that in your life. Sometimes you're supposed to be here even though you don't really want to be here. But where are you supposed to be? Where does God have you? If God has you in that boat, then the lifeboat should be cut off because that lifeboat is a misdirection. It, is, it would take you away from God's protection. God's protection is in that boat. God's protection is always in the midst of his will. Wherever God is leading you, that's where his grace is. And so as a result, you need to know that. So Darlene Dibler says, on Wednesday, a Dutch policeman came to inform us that they had a ship lying at anchor on the south coast. They wanted to evacuate all foreigners and all Dutch women and children who wished to go. A truck would call for us on Friday, so we should be ready. Okay, now, it just makes sense. We have to admit, it just makes sense. They have a boat for us. And it's for all foreigners and Dutch people, and they want you to get on, okay? This is just encouraged. Doesn't it make sense that we would get on that boat? If you're Darlene Dibler, I mean, you're dreaming about that boat. You're just so happy to hear that there is a boat. Now, I know Leslie covered this story last Wednesday, but it does still fit thematically, even though we're, we're double doing it on this story. This is a good story. This is a tough moment for us, because for those of us that are prone to lifeboats, we have ourselves a lifeboat. I mean, can you give a better name to this boat than a lifeboat? The shock troops of Japan. So it's not just like some friendly you know, enemy with feather dusters as their great weapon that are coming. They tickle your nose. Uh, and what, what was it in VeggieTales, you know, uh, where they send you off to the island of perpetual tickling? You know, that's not actually the great penalty that's going to come here. This is serious stuff. These guys are like, it feels like evil incarnate. Darlene Dibler says, we wanted none of our students to face the already infamous shock troops should invasion come. These shock troops were the first waves of invading soldiers who by their cruelty and heinous practices paralyzed the inhabitants with fear. Okay, so I see a lot of reasons why we should get off the island, guys. I know God called us here, but you know what? Maybe we could just let this whole thing pass over and then we could reconsider. We could reevaluate. Should we get off this island or should we stay? For most of us, I think we default to we get off. I mean, it's not like they're asking us, hey, do you want to get off the island? They're just saying, hey, get off the island. Okay, they seem to be saying that we should go. So let's just get out of here. But that isn't how this missionary group is going to handle it. Darlene says it this way. As we gathered for prayer, Dr. Jaffrey said, I want to counsel you not to, make, to discuss this decision that, you must, that must be made with each other, not even husband and wife. Go to your knees and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Should I go or shall I stay? This is extremely vital because then no matter what happens in the months or possibly years that lie ahead, 
you will know that you are exactly where God wants you to be. If he leads you to leave, you'll never feel that you were a coward and fled. If you are led to stay, no matter what happens, you can look up and say, Lord, you intended for me to be right here. We earnestly sought guidance. When the truck arrived on Friday, there was not a person among us who felt led to leave. As Dr. Jaffrey had said, God does not work in confusion, a wife against a husband or vice versa, in a matter that concerns both of you. This is but a confirmation to your hearts of his directive. So they are going to make the decision, even though it may look foolish to the outside world, even to themselves, probably as they're going through it, but they have a peace and a calm that they're supposed to stay. But the Japanese shock troops are about to arrive. They are literally seeing something other than what the natural man would see, because who in their right mind would ever stay in a situation like that? Some three days later, it was reported that the ship had been torpedoed and sunk. There were no known survivors. Then I knew why God had said, don't go. It is imperative that we know the voice of the shepherd and learn to follow him when he speaks. We must be obedient no matter what he says to us. It may even mean our life. You know that siren song, that allurement, that lifeboat always looks like it's going to offer you something, when in actuality, that's a pretty good summation of where a lifeboat leads you. A lifeboat doesn't lead you to a greater comfort, to a greater ease. It actually leads you outside the grace of God to a greater vulnerability and a greater danger. To be where God has you, where he has planted you, you remain, and you Wait to make sure that your eyes get open to see the mountain that is full of horses and chariots of fire all around. God has not departed from you. He is right there with you. But you need to remember that in those darker moments. Define the instinct to self-preserve. Sprinting into the danger instead of sprinting away from it. So our instinct, yes, as humans, this isn't just you know, uh, native to you as an individual, it's to all of us, is that in the midst of this type of danger, we will sprint away from it. It is a self-preservation instinct that we have. However, God wants to overrule that instinct within us that we do something very different than normal humans would do. In fact, I could just describe Christianity that way. Behaving very oddly when it comes to normal human behavior. We behave opposite of normal human behavior. You're supposed to hate when people hate you. Instead, we love. You're supposed to uh, think about yourself. Instead, of we think about others as more important than ourselves. Everything about Christianity is an invert. Inverse, it's an upside-down kingdom type of thing. And so as a result, when it comes to this, Yes, your natural instinct would be to self-preserve, but a Christian is very different. We think, God, what is your highest and best? That is what I want to preserve. We preserve God's agenda. We don't preserve ourselves. We preserve God's glory, not ourselves. We preserve the commission that God has given us. We don't look to preserve ourselves. So sprinting into it as opposed to away from it. So, of course, this is the classic picture of David. David is the amazing, uh, you know, we take it for granted. It's like, well, uh, that's just David. But this is a pattern. This is, uh, first of all, a picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, the son of David, and how he is going to stand against this Goliath. Goliath is about as intimidating as, as it gets. That's like Japanese shock troops. 
Okay, this is a very, very intimidating. This is like an army of Syrians coming against you and there's two of you. This is that sort of intimidation. Intimidation so grand that Saul, who would have been the giant of Israel, by the way, I don't know if you, you realize that Saul was head and shoulders above all Israelites, which means he would have been the giant in their culture. And he is terrified of this beast out there. All of Israel was trembling. This young little shepherd boy shows up in the camp and says, is there not a cause? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would dare defy the armies of the living God? And David is going to do something very different than the natural man would do. Because we see what the natural man would do. He cowers. He self-preserves. David is going to self-expend. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with sword and with spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. I want you to think about this because many of you have seen this scripture many times over, but I want you to imagine saying this to your current Goliaths. The things that are attempting to cow you, to bring you into subjection, to say you must fear me. Listen to this statement. You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. Now, our modern technology doesn't you know, use this to try and cow us. You come to me with political correctness, with social pressure, with all media control, you know, <laughs> whatever you would say it today, with threats of, of harm and threats of you know, closing down bank accounts, whatever it would be. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. David would cause you to think that that's stronger than all the other things that Goliath has. But in the natural realm, what Goliath possesses is greater than what David possesses. But David is convinced that he possesses something greater than what Goliath has. In fact, David is so confident of that that he knows he's going to win. He knows exactly what's going to happen. Do we? Do we have David's eyes to see that situation? Or are we stuck in the servant's eyes? It's like, alas, my master. What should we do? How are we viewing our Goliath? Look at David's action. 1 Samuel 17, 48. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. So this, this word could be hastened, hurried. It's like a sprinting movement to run with liquid ferocity as a lion towards his prey. So who's the prey in this situation? We thought it was David. No, it's Goliath. Yeah, David is the, is the lion that's hunting his prey. That is the most amazing thought, to think about how God turns the tables on this when a man actually is willing to see what God sees. God sees a defeated foe. God sees a giant that's going to topple. God, God sees a victory. Do we? Just like the son of David did. So it's not just David that we see here in this picture. We see that that is a picture of what Jesus himself is going to do at the cross. Jesus is going to run towards the cross, not away from it. Every human instinct that we have would be to get away from that cross. Everything in us, just like Jesus, that man's side of him is like, oh God, is there another way? That's a very real thing. And God even zooms in with the camera and brings in the microphone up close to Jesus so that we can hear that prayer. 
so that we can recognize Jesus did feel what we feel. He did have the human side, the human frailty, and yet that was overruled by his godness. He had the Holy Spirit. He had the power of God to obey. So do we. We have everything we need for that Garden of Gethsemane. We have everything that we need for the Valley of Elah. We have everything we need when we're surrounded by the Syrians. We have everything we need when the Japanese shock troops are approaching. We have everything we need for right now, in 2021, to stand as Christians. So just like the son of David did, sacrificially stepping forward in the day of challenge and refusing to run away. So there's multiple pictures of this. Now, not just Darlene Dibler, Darlene and Russell for not getting on the lifeboat originally, but when Darlene Dibler loses everything and she goes through con basically concentration camp, she is put on death row, she is going to be executed. I mean, there's so many extraordinary stories. I know Leslie's going to go deeper into this, and so I don't want to steal any of the thunder because it's a really good story. But it is a remarkable story of what she goes through as a result of this. The trauma to her body, to her mind, is so extreme in her obedience to Christ. And she is going to return after the war sort of uh, a specter of herself, uh, just a, a small fraction of who she was because she's lost so much weight. She's a skeleton compared to what she was. And yet, something has not changed inside of her, and that is a calling. And so... The strangest thing, but this, this lady is going to go back in, and there's something about that that is so moving to me about her story, to see that sort of difficulty, that sort of trauma, that sort of loss, but she still sees horses and chariots of fire all around. She sees the power of God. She's like, that's where my calling is. I want to go back. But Darlene, <laughs> you've spent your time there. You, you've invested. You've done your good deed. That's my calling. Elizabeth Elliot is an amazing picture of this. Her husband, Jim Elliot, is killed by the Aka Indians, and what does she do? She goes in to reach them with her family. I mean, who does that? That is a remarkable thing, and yet she doesn't sprint away. She sprints towards. And, of course, the great story of reaching the Akas is the result. Richard and Sabina, Sabina Wormbrandt, staying on in Romania, so if you had an opportunity to get out of Romania when Stalin is moving in, and by the way, they'd been there when Hitler uh, and the Nazis had controlled Romania in the beginnings of World War II, and at the end of World War II, now Stalin is coming. For all practical purposes, it's like, get out. Instead, they decide to stay to suffer with their people. Who, do, who does that? Why, why would you do that? And yet, that's the history of Christianity. You know, there were pastors in the early church that actually went into prison to be with their congregants that were about to be fed to lions and were fed with them so that they could comfort them in prison. Who thinks that way? Uh, <clears throat> we do. You see, this is a higher form of reasoning where we recognize that God is greater than what the enemy is doing. And God is greater than just even this mere earthly life. This mere earthly life is our opportunity to declare his glory, but it's not the end. It's a testing period in between, and how we handle it is so critical, and so let's spend it wisely and well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, so this is in World War II, in 1939, he is dealing with something because he's in America going to seminary. But if you know uh, your calendar, uh, 1939 is going to be the beginnings of World War II. 
So this is uh, in June of 1939. World War II is going to start in September of 1939 when Nazi Germany invades Poland. And so this is June. This is right before that. And this is a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. Some three days later, it was reported that the... Whoa, that's not the quote I wanted. I must have accidentally forgot. Do I have it? No, I don't even have it. Oh, no. Uh, so sorry, guys. That is a uh, different quote that I copied and pasted and then forgot to copy and paste in the Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote. So sorry about that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, it was a mistake for me to come to America. I am going to go back to Germany because I need to suffer with my people through this important period of time so when it is over, I will have a voice to reach them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, before, right, I mean, literally like weeks before the end of World War II, is going to be hung for his crimes. What are his crimes? Basically for being a Christian that stood against Hitler. And so, wow, he's, he's going to give his life up so that he has a voice with his people. And guess what? He had a voice with his people because of that. Forward, onward, March. So this is going to be a little flashback. If any of you listened through my summer series uh, on King Alfred or Spiritual Lessons from Alfred the Great, uh, which is a really fun series, by the way. I'm, I'm not trying to do a plug here, but this might be an accidental plug. Uh, it was a very, very fun series and very moving, very stirring for such a time as this. But they had the same issue back then. You see, there was an intimidation. It wasn't Japanese shock troops. It was Viking shock troops. And the Vikings, you know, painted themselves up in their war paint. They had all the goodies uh, going with it. I mean, it's pretty extreme what they would do to intimidate their foes. And at this time, the Vikings are probably the greatest military force in the world. Okay, so you're dealing with sort of the equivalent of the Nazis, the Japanese uh, shock troops. You know, it all goes together uh, if you study the Vikings. And they, you know what their great motive was? To crush Christianity. That's what moved them. It wasn't just the thirst for land, it was to crush this thing called Christianity. They hated it. They worshipped the gods Odin and Thor, and I guess Odin and Thor weren't very uh, <coughs> favorable towards Christ. And so as a result, it moved them with a satanic fervor to crush all the vestiges of this faith in what we know, we know then as Britannia, we know now as Great Britain or England. And so... Leave it to King Alfred to be the one guy to stand up against them. It's, it's a great story, guys. It's, it's like it's all is lost, all is turned black, and one guy rises up. One guy! And literally pushes all this darkness off the entire island. I mean, it's an amazing story. Of course, it took three generations to do it, but it's an amazing story that starts with King Alfred. So forward, onward, march. Define the Viking intimidation techniques. So this is an interesting study of how it would work for them. So they, they fought with shield walls at the time. And a shield wall would be an overlapping shield. And so you had a, a different shaped shield, you know, sort of like the circular shields, and they would overlap and sort of lock in place. Not really lock, but you had to hold it there. And as a result, they couldn't poke spears through it. So you would go shield wall against shield wall. It's a very fascinating form of battle. And so, but as they, were, they got into their position about 60 feet out and began to march and move forward, and there's multiple layers of shock that the enemy is going to bring against them to get them to give up and run. And you have to face each of these layers, okay? So let's walk through them. Let's, let's go back in, in history 
and uh, be uh, Wessex soldiers uh, for a bit. Sixty feet out, the flighting begins. So flighting, I'll, I'll describe what it is, but this is what's going to first hit you. So Dr. Merkel says this, the Danish throng began to shout across the open ground between the two closing shield walls, screaming out their prophecies of a coming Viking victory. So the Danes were the Vikings, okay? And I'm not against Danish people, by the way. It's just that they happen to be the Vikings in this situation. And so they're screaming out their prophecies of a coming Viking victory. They recounted their exploits throughout the already conquered shires of Wessex and related their opinion of the Saxon women. They promised to feed the flesh of their fallen adversaries to the hungry ravens circling overhead, the emissaries of their god, Odin. So the symbol of their god, Odin, was like the raven. And so they were going to feed their flesh to the ravens. Doesn't that sound a lot like Goliath? I mean, there's something about this that sounds very similar, right? And what they're doing is they're barking just like Goliath was doing. Goliath was flighting. You know, when he was standing there making fun, what am I, a dog that you come at me with sticks? He's flighting is what he's doing. So they're like yelling at the Wessex soldiers as they're making their way in saying, hey, we've won every battle we fought against you. Do you actually think you have a chance? And they're putting them down in every possible way, talking about their women. You know, the very things that cause men to get upset and, you know, and disturbed. And they're doing it and they're laughing, you know, and they're making it, hooting and hollering from 60 feet away, flighting. The devil's very good at this. He's, he's polished his version of this many times over to make you feel this big. You're nothing. Give up. You don't have a shot in this battle. You might as well turn and run right now. So if you've ever heard that whisper, I guarantee you it doesn't come from the Holy Spirit. Okay, once you put your, your finger on where it's coming from, it helps. Okay, that's not from God. That's from your Viking enemy. 40 feet out. Whew. Okay, we made it 20 feet, guys. Now we're 40 feet out. Uh-oh. The flying spears start flying. This is different than flighting. This is flying spears. Okay, this is pretty intense. So Dr. Merkel says it this way. When the soaring flock of spears landed on the shield wall below, a cacophony of bellows and screams erupted as the mortally wounded fell to the ground thrashing, spitted by the slender shafts of ash. Of course, many of the men managed to block the incoming spears with their raised shields, but the falling shaft still carried enough momentum that it would drive through the wooden shield and stick up to a foot out the other side, frequently splitting the arm that held the shield as well. This is a rough way to go, okay? You guys thought it was rough, you know, having them flight you, you know, for, you know, 20 feet, but now you got the flying spears. And, you know, for all practical purposes, there's a lot of reasons why maybe we should just leave the Vikings alone. Maybe we should just think of a different way to do this because I don't want to be in the midst of a hailstorm of flying spears. You have no choice. Move forward. You see, we have to keep going. The only way to find victory, the only way to purge England of these Vikings is to press forward. But the flying spears, I know. Let's go. Our God is greater. 20 feet out. Oh, no. The berserkers start sprinting towards you. You guys ever heard of the berserkers? Uh, you ever heard the word berserk? Mm -hmm, that's where it comes from. So if you can think about what the word berserk would mean, you're know, sort of like someone like going, ah, that's about uh, close, okay? The berserker gang, and I'll describe it here in just a second, but this is sort of spooky, okay? And this is what the Vikings would do to cause a tremble and a fear and to to hopefully incite terror in the, in, in the side of the Wessex soldiers so that they would turn and run and they would give up their position. 
Dr. Merkel says it this way, but the Vikings still had one more deadly weapon to launch at the Saxons before the opposing shield walls collided. When the two forces were still 20 paces apart from one another, small bands of maniacally crazed Viking warriors burst forward from behind the Danish shield wall and sprinted straight at the Saxon ranks. These lunatic bands were the Viking berserkers, the shock force of the Danish army. Oh, great. You know, yeah, so we don't have the uh, Japanese shock force. We have the Viking shock force. The enemy works with shock force. You figure that one out. It doesn't matter what age and generation it is. The devil works with shock. His goal is to strike terror inside of you. Uh, do I have any more? Yes, I do. Okay, so here it is. Dr. Merkel continues. Before a battle, these men danced in small circles and through great concentration and an occasional hallucinogenic mushroom, worked their minds into a murderous craze, a mental state they referred to as berserker gang. They painted their faces to appear like hideously grotesque wild beasts and went, went either nude or wore only the skins of bears or wolves. Basically, this is a demonic possession of some kind, and they would be like these wild men, oftentimes without any clothes on. You could just imagine how crazy this would be, and then they would start sprinting right at the shield wall and screaming uh, like wild banshees. And you could just imagine how that would strike terror. And what's interesting is you could shoot arrow, 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 arrow into these guys, and they would keep coming. They couldn't feel pain. It was like something of what they were doing like numbed them to the pain so that you could hack off their arm and they'd still keep coming. That would, that would unnerve most people. Just like the devil's work can oftentimes unnerve us if we allow it to. Just like you see the servant talking to Elisha. Alas, my master, the berserker gang. Uh-huh. Uh, Lord, open his eyes that he would see that our God is greater than the berserker gang. You know, in this story, it's so good because... Alfred has watched this for so many battles now, and he's ready. Spiritually, he's ready. Like, God has, like, altered his life, and he is ready to fight. He even chose the day of battle to be Pentecost because he knew that that was a day when the church that didn't have power to do the commission received the power to take on the enemy. And so he literally waits for that day, calls all of Wessex secretly to himself at Egbert Stone, and attacks I mean, this is a good story. This is a really good story. And so the berserker gangs are coming down, coming out. What do they do? Pfft, hack them down. No fear. We do not fear your intimidation was basically his response. It's like, whoa, we could use a dose of that today. That we do not fear the shock troops of the enemy, which are ideological shock troops trying to cow us into submission, to run with our tail between our legs, say, oh, I'm so sorry, so sorry, so sorry I said anything. Oh, no, I didn't mean it, I didn't mean it, I didn't mean it. We serve the living God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is seated on high and all things are beneath his feet. He is over all authority. Let us not be the cowards. We are the commissioned. Dr. Merkel continues, one description of the onset of the berserker rage recounted how the trance began with shivering, chattering of teeth, and a chill all over the body. Then the warrior's face flushed with color and began to swell as he was carried away by the rage. At this point, the berserker received superhuman strength and could bite through a shield or cut down anything in his path. So relentless was the murderous rage that berserkers could be severely wounded innumerable times without noticing that they had been so much as scratched. Oh, okay, you can understand how that would unnerve us, okay? But 
we live in a time, different battle, same spirits coming against us. The same things that inhabited these characters back then, these demons are still lingering, okay? This is an ancient tactic. What we have to remember is the ancient tactic of heaven, faith. It's called a shield of faith that quells every fiery dart of the enemy. We will not fear. Hold up your shield walls, men. Your shield walls. Your shields, men. Let's be a shield wall. That's, that's a little better. Dr. Benjamin Merkel says, for Guthrum, the real advantage of deploying the berserker bands was not in their ability to inflict significant casualties on the opposing force, but rather in their ability to instill terror in the front ranks of the opposing army as the two forces approached. Fear not. Stand your ground and don't fall for the enemy's flighting, flying spears and streaking madmen. In every generation, there's a different list. For us, it wouldn't be flighting, flying spears and streaking madmen, but there is the equivalent today. And the enemy is doing his best to get into our psyche to get us to cower, to get us to seek a lifeboat, an escape hatch, to get off of our target, to leave our commission, to leave our post. We have been assigned by our king a job. Let's carry it out. Dr. Merkel says this. This is a good moment. Okay, this is bringing me back to the summer series, and I'm getting all excited. I want to start talking about Alfred with you guys. With one last shout, Alfred, the ring giver of Wessex, urged his men to be true to their vows and fired their hearts with courage as the Saxon line braced for the coming impact. Across the shrinking gap between the two armies, the last of the Viking taunts and the various pagan invocations of Odin swirled in the air and soon turned into one indiscernible, gore-hungry, red-faced, maniacal shriek. In that deafening roar of blood-curdling shouting and horrific howling, the two shield walls crashed into one another." Should I hold it back on who won this battle, by the way? Wouldn't it be terrible if it's like, yeah, the Vikings won, but you know, that's beside the point. <laughs> no, no. This is a great battle. It's going to change the course of history. I mean, literally, history is going to be shaped here. But how did history get shaped? They had to stare down the flighting. They had to stare down the flying spears. They had to stare down the streaking madmen. They could not be intimidated. They had to have eyes to see that their God was greater than the demons that were attempting to cow them into submission. The conclusion on the matter, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Isn't it funny that the term is little children? It's like, we're these little delicate things, children. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If you stare at some of the evil out there, it looks so strong. And God uses the term little children. Oh, you, know, you're, you can defeat them, little children, but that's a Goliath. Yeah, you can defeat them. Oh, the Japanese shock troops. Oh, yes, little children, you can over, you've overcome them. It's like, what? Little children, that's the most fragile word you could ever use to describe us. And yet it's not our strength, it's his. And so even though we be sheep, even though we be little children, we have overcome them because greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. 
the missionary motto of Stanley Dale. We've said this every single episode so far. It's good. Going enthusiastically, sharing courageously, serving sacrificially, suffering joyfully, dying triumphantly. And we have Stanley Dale prayers, and we are up to 10 now. Wait till you see what 10 is. Aren't you guys excited to see what today's prayer is? Oh, it's a good one. It's a really good one. So uh, the legend maker, which is the very first message in the series, Lord, prepare me for the heavenly call. The second message was, Lord, refine my taste buds for all heavenly delicacies. Lord, season me, toughen me, and prepare me for all difficulty. Lord, may I be preoccupied with that which preoccupies you. The fifth one, Lord, may I uncover that which is in the thicket for my Sawi tribe. Number six, Lord, may I be a doer and not just a hearer. Number seven, Lord, show me clearly that I am never out of your sight. Number eight, Lord, may I stand when others sit. Number nine, Lord, fill me with your spirit of boldness in today's. Number 10, Lord, open my eyes that I may see. Father, that is precisely what we ask. We ask that you would open our eyes just as you did the servant of Elisha. Lord, we have spent way too much time focused on what the enemy is doing. And we haven't beheld your glory. We haven't beheld your truth. We haven't beheld your promises. We haven't beheld your working. Lord, you are always doing what God does. And even though the enemy is marshaling his best, you are still greater. And Lord, may we see that. May we remember that Haman hangs on his own gallows. May we remember that Goliath falls. May we remember that the Syrians are struck blind. May we remember that the enemy's head was crushed at the cross. And may we remember that empty tomb. Our Redeemer lives. And may we remember that you are seated on high and all things are beneath your feet. And may we hold up our shield of faith for we have been given armor that is more than effective for the job description that we've been given. And that when we hold up our shield of faith, it repels all the fiery darts of the evil one. Lord, we love you and we submit to you today. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.